turn back to that passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, which uh, Jeff read for us earlier. And thanks very much, guys, for leading our worship this evening. Let's just pray as we come to the Lord's Word. Lord God, we do thank you for your Word. Thank you that it contains everything we need to, to know you, to relate to you, but also to know how to live as Christians in this world and how to relate to one another. And we thank you for one another. We thank you for the church that you've placed us in. And we pray now as we hear from you that you would just build us up in one another, help us to encourage one another, help us to appreciate uh, who we have and how we can support and pray for each other. So bless uh, this time now as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you, uh, you're old enough, you'll remember the, the moment uh, in 1998 in the, the World Cup quarterfinal match against Argentina. I'm sure there's a few of you around. That moment when David Beckham was given the red card for retaliation. A stupid and petulant kick, and uh, he was off. And this is how he describes um, that event in his biography, his autobiography. He writes this, he says, It was probably the longest walk in my life. Looking back, I'm not sure what thoughts were going through my mind. It was a swirl of fear, guilt, anger, worry, and confusion. My head was spinning. I walked into the dressing room. The rule stated that I had to stay in there for the duration of the match. England lost. We were out of the World Cup. When the England players came back into the dressing room, no one breathed a word to me. There was almost complete silence. I could feel my stomach tightening even more. I gulped, I breathed in, and gulped again. I was in a packed changing room, but I'd never felt so lonely in my life. I was isolated and afraid. I was trapped in my own sense of guilt and anxiety. Well, we can feel lonely for, for different reasons, can't we? But God doesn't intend for us to be lonely and isolated. God created us to be in relationships uh, with him and with one another. And the theme of this letter to the Thessalonians has been the gospel, how the gospel message has power, how the gospel brings encouragement and hope, how it changes the way we, we live our lives. And as we come to the end of the letter, we see that the gospel also changes the way we relate to one another. It changes our relationships. Church is a community of people whose lives have been changed, and people who now relate to one another in a different way. It doesn't mean we're perfect by, by any means. And that is why Paul is writing to this new church in Thessalonica with some instructions about how they should relate to one another. And the reasons he addresses them time after time in this letter as brothers and sisters, five times in just this uh, short passage alone, is to emphasize they are now part of the same family. And they should therefore relate to one another as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. The health of the church depends on the health of its relationship with God in the first instance. 
but also in the health of its relationship with one another. And what this passage will show us uh, is what a healthy church with healthy relationships looks like. And the first thing that Paul mentions is that when gospel relationships are healthy, people speak well of their leaders. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. Paul starts by saying, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and to admonish you. These people, he says, who work hard among you, who who care for you, or um, another translation has it, are over you, who admonish you, are your leaders. They're the ones the Spirit has led you to appoint to take responsibility for your Christian growth. Now the trouble is in our our society, we've developed an unhealthy attitude towards those in leadership or authority. There is a, a constant suspicion that they're in it for their own interests, maybe their, their love of power and influence or, or money. Uh, and in some cases, there may be some truth in that. But the danger is we tar all leaders with the same brush. And when that attitude of, of mistrust creeps into the church, it can be very damaging. Uh, and leaders can be viewed as uh, the scapegoats, the ones we blame when things are not going as we would like them to go. But actually, they are our fellow believers who are there to serve and to care for us. Now, I'm not saying that that is the case in our church, but uh, there are many case, churches where that is the case. And no church is immune from that. It can very easily become like it. What does Paul say our attitude should be towards our leaders in verse 13? He says, hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. The elders in this church do work very hard, as I'm sure you're aware. They don't sell later to elders' meetings for the sake of it. They, they take seriously the leadership of this church first hour or so of the elders' meetings, we, we spend time praying for one another, for people in this church, for the pastoral needs of, of our church. Um, we try and meet once a month just to pray for the church. Next uh, weekend, we've got a day's uh, retreat, and we'll come together and discuss and pray for the church. We appreciate your prayers for that. Elders don't take on the role in order to get appreciation, all recognition, but when it comes, clearly it is a great encouragement to, uh, to them. And Hebrews 13, the writer there makes some similar comments to those here. He says this, he says, Have confidence in your leaders, submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So the way... You can make their work a joy is to show you trust them, to show you appreciate them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, they spend hours praying and discussing issues before you know, they, they come and we discuss them together as a church. It doesn't mean you should just accept what uh, elders present to you, you know, engage with it, ask questions. Um, it is sometimes difficult to interpret silence. You know, is that a, um, a positive affirmation or is that a, a reluctant acceptance? You may not always agree with uh, what the elders may recommend. Um, But try and make a distinction between what you just don't really like and actually what you think 
it's just going against what is in the Bible, what is wrong. And that is when we do need to call the, the elders to account. Well, as we address to the next issue, Paul is addressing all the believers in Thessalonica. And what he is saying here in verses 14 and 15 is a healthy church is also one where people speak the truth in love. And what he's saying here in these verses is basically look after each other because there will be those in the church who have different needs. There will be those, he talks here, who are idle and disruptive. There will be those who are disheartened. There will be those who are weak. And in each case, the response to them and the care for them has to be different. If people are being idle and disruptive, uh, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, they need to be warned, it says here. Yes, the elders should admonish, it, it tells us, but it's the role of every believer to, to warn. The church is a, a body of believers, all using their gifts for the good of the whole. And if somebody is not using their gifts, or worse still, is being divisive, uh, disruptive, and affecting the whole body, then Clearly, that needs to be dealt with. As Brits, we find that difficult um, because we don't like confrontation. But uh, you know, if we allow things just to go unchallenged, it will lead to greater problems later on. It is encouraging that in this church there is a good attitude towards serving. That people do see their need to get involved, to, to serve and help out. And that is a great encouragement there will be some who are disheartened. Maybe in the case of Thessalonica here, it's because they were experiencing severe persecution and they were finding it tough. Maybe it's because of physical illness. There'll be people in our church who struggle because of physical illness. Maybe someone, maybe themselves or someone they are caring for. Maybe they're struggling spiritually. What do they need? They need encouraging. They need to be pointed to the courage, the strength that can be found in Jesus Christ. There will be many in this church who are disheartened for various reasons. If that is you, then don't be too proud to ask for help. Your brothers and sisters are around you just waiting to to help you in whatever way they can. That is what we're all here for, isn't it? There will be some, it says, who are weak. And this probably refers to the weak-willed, maybe those who are struggling with temptation. We looked at that the other week in the whole area of sexual uh, temptation. What are those people? They, they need to be helped. Don't wait for them to, to fall into temptation and then judge them. Help them to, to avoid it. And if they do fall, well then pick them up. Help them get back on their feet as you remind them of the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. In that dressing room where, where Beckham sat in silence amongst his teammates, he then wrote, Then, as if from nowhere, a totally unexpected crumb of comfort. Tony Adams, not necessarily the person you'd expect to give the crumb of comfort, Tony Adams, if you remember him, put his arm around me. It was a strong Embrace. I could feel that he meant it, that he could see how much I was suffering, that he wanted to take away some of the pain. Look, son, everyone makes mistakes, he said. Don't let it get you down. You're going to come back stronger and better. 
That might not be the same gospel words of encouragement we, we might offer uh, a believer um, to somebody who's made a mistake. We would offer them, obviously, to remind them of the forgiveness that is in Christ and encourage them, likewise, that they will be stronger. But it also reveals that same attitude of compassion, doesn't it? Compassion to somebody who's in pain, somebody who knows they've done wrong, who knows they need forgiveness. The care people need is different in each of those three cases, isn't it? But what is common to each response comes next. It says, be patient with everyone. People may not change overnight. They may not change automatically after you've warned them or encouraged them or helped them. It may take a long time, but be patient, he says. Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. Why? Because God was patient with you. He didn't give up on you. He kept uh, persevering with you. He kept chasing you. What they're speaking in truth in love is all about is really providing pastoral care and that will take different forms according to different people's needs what is important Paul is saying in verse 15 is to make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong be a forgiving church don't allow anybody to harbour grudges always he says strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else you're all in this together he's saying Don't just worry about your own needs. Look out for the needs of those around you. If one of you walks away from Jesus because he or she hasn't been warned or encouraged or helped, then you'll share the responsibility in that. Well, the next section starts at verse 16 and I think runs on to verse 22. Another aspect of a healthy church is that people are spirit-filled. Starts there in verse 16 with a verse that we had for the year, from a couple of years ago. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's then followed by a short verse, do not quench the spirit. And then it carries on, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Now it's not clear exactly that command in the middle there, do not quench the spirit. Is it referring back to the rejoicing, praying and giving thanks or forward to the not treating prophecies with contempt? Or maybe it's meant to do both. I'm going to assume both because of all that, if you think about it, is spirit-filled activity, isn't it? You can only rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances if the spirit is in you. That is what the Spirit living in us wants to do. And therefore it's a natural overflowing, it's an outpouring of him working in us. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. If we're not doing that, then actually we're quenching the Spirit. We're putting out his fire. We're preventing him from working through us. So we need to be doing that as individuals, but we need to be doing that as as a church. And so our worship should be characterized by being spirit-filled, by by giving thanks, by praying continually, by rejoicing. Joy should be an aspect of our church. But what about a little bit about prophecies? What 
what are these prophecies? Well, I haven't got time to go into that in depth this evening, and it is a, a controversial area. People do have different views uh, on this. Uh, at a basic level, a prophecy is a word from God. The Old Testament prophets brought a message from God to the people of God. And we're told in Hebrews that we're told this in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, there is clearly here a difference between the way God communicated to his people in Old Testament times through the prophets and since the coming of Christ. Some will say that, well, we no longer need prophets because we we now have the Bible in its entirety as the inspired word of God. But the New Testament does talk about the gift of prophecy. It also talks about the gift of, of teaching. And I think there is a distinction between the two. There are those who are called to teach, those who take the word of God and by the Spirit's help enable others to understand it, to apply it to their lives. That's what it is the work of preaching is about. But I think God also does give certain people special insight into a specific situation at a specific time. Now we may not use the... uh, the same vocabulary as some charismatic churches when they say, well, I've got a word of knowledge, I've got a prophecy for you. Maybe we're saying, I think this verse might be helpful for you. Um, maybe God has laid something on my heart. In some ways, it's not really much different, is it? It's still a word from the Lord. I think the key thing here is let's not quench the Spirit by rejecting what might be from the Lord and what might be a real encouragement for us. Maybe as individuals or maybe as a church. Paul does say be discerning about it. He does say test it. Test it against scripture because if it contradicts what it says in the Bible, then it can't be from the Lord, can it? Test in the sense of who is it giving it to you? Is it somebody who's godly who can see by their, their behavior, by their wisdom, that that may be from the Lord? Or does the message contradict them and their behavior? Test it. And then hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. And that testing doesn't just go for a word you've been given. It goes for every sermon you hear, every, every blog you, you read. Does it conform to what the Bible says or have these words been misinterpreted? To grow as a Christian is to grow in discernment to be able to see more clearly what is from God and what isn't. Well, finally, a healthy church is one where people are praying for one another to grow in their faith. Paul finishes with a great prayer, doesn't he, for the the people in Thessalonica. Look at verse 23. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body Be kept blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The church in Thessalonica has been brought into being by the gospel. They heard that powerful message of salvation. They submitted to it. They accepted it. The church is also being shaped and being transformed by the gospel. 
Paul and Silas and Timothy went to Thessalonica to proclaim the gospel. They went to disciple new believers. Ultimately, it's God doing the work through them. And that is why Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. You are already holy in his sight. You are accepted because of what Jesus did. You've accepted that gift of salvation. You won't ever be sinless this side of eternity, but he's saying, may you be kept blameless. May he make you more and more pure, more and more like Jesus. And that is a vision we have as a church, to see lives changed by Christ, changed as people come to know Christ, but changed as people grow in their faith. It is Christ who changes us, but he also uses us to change others. And so Paul is praying that God would enable them to grow in their faith. And he also asks them to pray for him and his other brothers, isn't he? It's his companions, brothers and sisters. It says, pray for us. It is a mutual thing. We need to be seeking our own growth. But let's not just focus on our lives. Who can we help by God's grace to, to, to change? Who are we praying for? Well, as we finish, God has given us one another. That is a great blessing. That is a great gift. He's given us the gift of relationships. We need to ensure they are gospel relationships. With gospel relationships, differences of age and maturity, of character, of interest, none of that really matters, does it? What matters is we enjoy one another, we pray for one another, we support one another, we help each other grow into the likeness of Christ by the grace of God working through us. And helping us, helping one another to be ready for that day when Christ comes again. And he takes us to be with him for eternity. That is the theme of Thessalonians, getting ready for that day. Let's be ready together.